My first rifle was a 243. Papa gave daddy and daddy gave to me. And they tell me how to shoot with a steady hand. Hey there, Robbie Kroger, and welcome to All American Wing Shooting Podcast. All American Wing Shooting Podcast. It's like the total antithesis of I who I am. <laughs> I dare I call myself, yes, I am an American, not all American. And wing shooting, um, I tend to miss more than I hit. So that's why you have me on. Wing shooting, well, you know, expert. Yeah, but you have a tradition with the, with wing shooting with your boys every year. You've been taking them. Yeah, we take them duck hunting, but most times we don't have any ducks to shoot at, so it becomes a squirrel hunt. Uh, <laughs> so that's pretty good. Um, and, uh, yeah, I'm definitely wanting to get them more and more into it. They're, you know, they're at an age now that they shot the 410 last year by themselves, holding it by themselves, shooting at cans and shooting at squirrels, and then were followed up by multiple 12 gauge shotguns to get the squirrel out the tree. Um, but we let them this, you know, know that they shot it in the tail or the foot or whatnot. That's what killed the, the squirrel. And, um, but yeah, no, I definitely want to get them more into the wing shooting sports. I think it's, it's something that we can easily do. And it's the first thing that opens every year, right? September one is the tradition of, you know, dove fields all across the United States Yeah, and kids coming to that, uh, coming to that tradition and, and being introduced to hunting that way. Well, I, I love that dove hunting was the first, um, bird hunting wing shooting event I ever went to. And, uh, I was a teenager and then I just kind of fell, fell off of it. And then years later I got my dog and that's when I got into it. I mean, well, she'll be eight this July. So yeah, it's just, it's a great community family, um, sport and and hunting camp yeah and it's a good way again to as you, to your point to the dog right i need to i have a i have a 68 pound beast rochambeau uh, who is a mix between a Brittany and a boykin and mm -hmm. not many people have that mix um, i wanted to have an upland dog and i wanted to have a waterfowl dog mixed into one and uh and instead that's of being, a lap <laughs> that's called a, a, a lot of pedigree dog <laughs> at all <laughs> Um, and so, you know, he's a, he's a good looking dog. He looks like a boykin. He's got the tuft of hair on his head. He's got the curly brown hair, but he, he's a, cute. I've seen him riding yeah, around in the car with y'all. <laughs> yeah. He's a good looking dog, but he's 68 pounds, not 35 pounds. And, um, as my, um, <laughs> as my, uh, friend from Arkansas, a good redneck friend in Arkansas says, when he gets wet, he looks like chicken on a stick. Oh and, gosh. Because he's got this huge block of a body and then he's got these like little tiny legs that not tiny, long skinny legs that stick out from this huge block of a body. But he needs to do more. I like, you know, I haven't had much time to really train him. I haven't had much time to really put in the work and take him hunting and take him into a situation. And this year, I, I because um, there's some, some movement happening in my family life then we're going to be changing locations of where we live and we're going to be living closer to places to be able to hunt. And so that is uh, exciting news. Yeah, it's exciting news. It's exciting news. It's good for the family. It's, um, we're moving for family. The family um, element needs to, we need to be closer to family and that's mm -hmm. something that a decision we decided to make. And so we'll be closer to hunting country and uh, 
the dog will be able to go on a dove hunt and maybe us, you know, just a me and him dove hunt or me and, a, and another guy who can shoot properly so that birds will fall from the sky so well, that he's not you're staring up other dogs. Boys to um, preserve hunting, you know, to put up some pheasants and mm-hmm. really get that experience with them. Oh, no, we can definitely do that. And we've got a good friend in uh, in Oxford, Mississippi, that would be close by where we're living. Uh, Josh Kwong, who runs like a little preserve, little yeah. ranch that places quail and places pheasants and stuff like that. And they've been there. They've been with me on that. Um, so, yeah, no, it's exciting. That's so exciting because they're just now to the age where they can start having some independence. And I experienced that with Hallie Joe, and I didn't, she just had to watch for forever. She had her own dog, but she couldn't really do much with her having mm-hmm. a short hair at three, you know? And so I was like, she's Who still has a short hair at three. Come on. Tater bug. Nobody. Tater bug. Exactly. Tater bug. Exactly. So, um, yeah, that, and that's why we ended up getting into the labs because it offered her that independence earlier on. So she hunt tested last summer and that was amazing because, you know, you get your dogs to the skill level where you use those skills in the field. It makes hunting more fun. Mm-hmm. Um, but anyways, like, yeah, the, I just, I love it. So maybe, maybe your kiddos will end up with another dog. Uh, negative. Do all that. You never know. Oh no, I know. They will love it. No, mom is, mom is like, nope, no more dogs. Well, you only have one. Exactly. One I'm, too many. I'm almost down to four. I've got one more that I need to sell. One too many. One too many. I'll be down to one too many. Oh gosh. No, for me, we have one too many, according to my wife. So, oh gosh, I, you know, JC was the same way. She was all about horses and now she's going to college. She swiped our friend Nick's dog, taking the dog to college. It snuck it in the dorm. It stayed with her. She's hauling the lab to the baseball games, uh, throwing marks in the front lawn of the dorm. She's like, I don't know why, like no kid should grow up without a dog. Like she's starting to really get it because she used to just be sold out with horses. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But yeah, so it's fun. I mean, that, you know, that is what we, we're all about that. But well, one thing that I absolutely love about what you do in Blood Origins, because you've been a huge part of my outdoor in, um, just involvement for years, is that, you know, you've told the heart of hunters and even non-hunters mm-hmm. about the outdoor life. And so when I wanted to do this all-American wing shooting podcast, it was like, Robbie does, like, I wanted to mold this after what you do, because there's so many podcasts out there in the wing shooting world that talks about shooting techniques, dog training, just, you know, the bells and whistles of everything, but nobody's talking about the heart of it. Like mm-hmm. why we keep doing it. Like, the fact that we take so much American pride into this lifestyle and stuff. So, you know, I just, I listen to your podcast a lot. I promote them often and it, well, I mean, I, I just feel like if you're not listening to blood origins, you're missing out on a lot because dealing with all the political things that we go through and you're doing an amazing job, educating people about things that they're not going to see scrolling on their phone it's going to be blocked now they're not going to know it unless they follow a resource and stay committed to a resource that's going to educate them about reality mm-hmm. yeah no we that's and you know we want to be very fair right because as hunters and, and hunting 
we're under the gun, we're under a microscope, we're under whatever you want to call it. Um, and so we have to be even more rigorous in what we say. We need to be more genuine in, in how we portray ourselves. We have to hold ourselves to much higher standards. And someone will say to me, well, no, Robbie, you don't have to do that. We shouldn't be doing that. We, you know, the, the Stuff them, right? Forget them. They, they can say what they want. Yes, that is true. But if you're truly interested in keeping this thing that you love around for your kids and your grandkids one day, you won't take that attitude because that attitude is just going to result in less of what you love. And so you've got to decide. You've got to decide that, number one, you've got to take a high road. Number two, you've got to decide that when you put facts out there or when you put a position statement in place, that, for instance, from our perspective, you have to be right. You can't, you can't be semi-right. You can't be just, uh, I think that's okay. Or I'm just going to lackadaisically put a statement out there because you'll get called on it. And you'll get called on it by hunters too. And also- You get called out on things when you are speaking facts. Oh, no. Yeah, all the time. Yeah. Like, every day pretty much is a, is a current occurrence right now being called out on things. I was having a conversation this morning with a guy that's a, an avid turkey hunter. He's an avid turkey hunter. Um, and he commented on an anti-hunting post in line with the anti-hunters saying that this hunt was despicable. It was an elephant hunt. Okay. I get your opinion. I get your opinion that you don't like elephant hunting, but that's like any other, that's like any kind of hunting, right? You may be a duck guy and I don't like turkey hunting. Okay, are you going to go on a turkey page and somebody's shot a turkey? You're going to get on that page and go, I hate you because this is greed. You're just doing it for this or that. No, you're not. You're going to say, I don't like it. I don't agree with it, but I'm not going to jump on the AR side of things because I'm doing a disservice to hunters and hunting. And I had a long diatribe with him, a long direct message back and forth with the guy. And he just didn't like elephant hunting and he was going to... He just felt it was greed. And he said, you know, I hunt turkeys for the adventure. I hunt turkeys for the thrill. And I said, they do the same thing for elephants. So what's the difference here? Why is your style of hunting different than this? And it was just the classic, like I couldn't, I planted some seeds. I know I did, but he was just so recalcitrant to hearing what I had to say because he had a pre sort of position that had been influenced by the emotional rhetoric of the post that he had just seen and he had supported. Mm -hmm. um, so we were always constantly going to be fighting an uphill battle for hunters and non-hunters. That I mean, that would be so embarrassing to me if you were telling that story and it was about me because the guy would stand but on you a- you can understand it though, Anna, right? I know, on a and, conservation and side or anything, you know, about turkeys. Well, if you don't, if you don't take out so many turkeys, then you have too many turkeys, habitat destruction, blah, 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 right? Why does he think such a standard principle wouldn't apply to an elephant? Because it's a mega, you know, it's a, it's a charismatic megafauna that has a, a, a legacy of Disney and Dumbo. It's got an emotional attachment. It's long lived. It has, you know, a lot of anthropomorphic, components to it long gestation periods there's all sorts of things it's it, there's lots of you know elements here that could factor into it um 
But at the end of the day, I believe with this guy specifically is that, and you can understand this, <laughs> the friends, he was just stubborn. He didn't want to hear. He didn't want to be wrong. He didn't want to be wrong. He didn't want to listen and think. Mm-hmm. And that's all I kept telling him. I said, he goes like, why would you shoot an endangered species? I was like, mm, there's 130,000 of them in Botswana. Yes, it's an endangered species according to IUCN and CITES. Yes, but not in this, not in this place. In this place, there, you know, the, the data may suggest that the population is stabilized, but the, the, the population is at its highest level ever. Um, so, you know, it, from going back to the original question, we have to tell the truth and we have to tell the heart of hunters. We also have to tell the story of what hunting does from a benefit and consequences perspective for people. So break it out into three things. And this came out of a podcast here recently that I did. And I'm really going to shift my mindset towards it constantly is that you've got to think of, of, of wildlife conservation when it comes to hunting in three realms, in an environmental realm and ecological realm. So what are you, if you're doing, and that's harming the environment or that's harming the population, we need to evaluate hunting. An economic perspective is what you're doing from a hunting perspective. What is it doing economically? for the economy, for community, for the region, for whatever. Mm-hmm. And then socially, how is it talking? How is it interacting with people? Is it, you know, bolstering people's livelihoods? Is it doing um, a disservice to people? Those kinds of things. So those three stools are what you have to look at. And so you have to speak in those terms. You have to speak in those truths. And you have to get, and, and here's the, the position that Blood Origins is in, is that, again, the reason why we have to be correct is a lot of people look at us, they'll read what we say, and then they'll regurgitate it, just like this guy did. And so we have to be right. And we have to be able to couch it in such a way that people understand it. It's not too sort of highfalutin, too scientific or whatnot, but it's just like, yeah, you know, why, why are we worried about this big elephant being hunted when nobody's talking about the people that have benefited? Now, right. We're talking about the 350 people that live in this, this area that nobody's ever heard of that lined up to get meat and it provided them protein for the next two and a half to three weeks. Oh, that, I think that's been the biggest heartfelt um, impact of what I've seen through working with SCI, which you and I both do. Um, when they shut down... Um, <clears throat> you know, being able to travel and then seeing all of these outfitters that are associated with that organization and depend on, you know, the U- the hunters coming from the U.S. to go there and hearing their stories and just seeing those posts one after another. It was like, not like here we had small businesses going out of business, but we had the, their society of there was struggling to survive. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And we as Americans cannot put ourselves in their shoes. Like we can't comprehend that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's easy to become an armchair conservationist, right? And say, this is what you should be doing, or this is what you should be doing. The circumstances are just so incomprehensible sometimes that the only way that you can understand them is if you go there and you can see it for yourself. And and that's, at the end of the day, one of the the things that we push back on is like when someone gets to a point, it's like, I don't believe you, I don't believe you, I don't believe you. Say, fine, go. The invitation's open. I can connect you with the guy. He'll take you on a week and show you everything. Go see it for yourself. I don't know one person. Nobody's taking us up 
Unfortunately, nobody's taken us up on that yet. I, I do. I would love to go. I don't know one person that has come back from there from a hunting trip and said, this trip didn't change my life. And it had nothing to do with the hunting. It had to do with the people, the culture, the just learning about life opposite of what we know here in the States. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And no I'm sure the really, hunting had a factor. The hunting's really good. Well, yeah, so. but I mean, you know, people talk about it, but they, they really talk about like the lodge life. And like, I have a friend who kept in touch with her chef and she is getting recipes and stuff. And they stay in touch because it seems like if you go once and then you go multiple times, you end up going to the same place to see the same people that you build relationship with. Mm-hmm. No, hundred percent. A lot of people do that. A lot of people will find the people that they're comfortable with and that they love. And they'll just be like, we're going to stay here when we come to South Africa or wherever they went. Right. And then if they decide to go somewhere else, they'll say like, you, you're coming with me Yeah. because I know you. Right. Well, now my wing shooting instructor that got me shooting plays, I shot tournaments with him for two and a half years, like shot with him every day. He got started shooting um, clays because he was safari hunting every year. So his guide on lions told him to come back to the States so he could prepare to go back for his lion hunt. I don't know what he was, what he was hunting then set up a, a rabbit trap machine at him and shoot those clays. And he's like, if that clay makes it to you, you're dead. And that was what, that's how he wow. told him to prep for that. And so, um, he just got addicted to the clay game through prepping to go shoot his lion. Amazing. Yeah. That and then, crazy um, story. then the, there's, um, short hair trainers and breeders that have been amazing mentors to me here in Georgia and they have genetics in, in South Africa, hmm. like similar genetics to what I have. And so, yeah, I've got a few connections there. So it's like, I, I think I'm just going to have to make that trip when things settle down. Definitely. Yeah. One day. Yeah, I would love it. So how did you get here? Like, I've known you for a while. And I don't I don't think I know the story of you leaving there and your motive to come to the States and build this career and then have all of your experiences I mean, I do know the story of, you know, your letter with hunting and, and mm-hmm. things that you talk about with that, but getting here and then building blood origins to tell these stories, because not only do you showcase South Africa, but you showcase the world. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think, I think that's the most proud. That's the thing that I'm most proud of with blood origins is that our global fingerprint is insane. I think we get money donated to us from 26 countries around the world right now. Um, our fingerprint is like people from, I think, 37 countries listen to our podcast. Um, it's an insane, insane little community that we've built. Um, but no, I came to America in, in 2003. I was finishing a master's in South Africa. I did a Bachelor of Science honors and master's in South Africa, um, all focused on wetland ecology, essentially. So I'm a swamp guy. That's what I do. That's what I love. And um, I was just looking around the internet. There was no Google at the time. It was yahoo.com and there was a bunch of bullet points and said colleges and universities. And I clicked on the bullets and came up with all the states of America. And I started at A and quickly realized that every time I clicked the state, there'd be like a hundred options of different colleges and universities that you could attend. And so I went to the university of the state first. That was where I'd go always. So I made my way through and every time I'd click on a university, I'd look for the biology department or environmental science department, environmental engineering, and 
look through the faculty list to see if I recognize anyone's names. Because once you're in a field, you recognize people that have published in your field. And I got to M, I got to Mississippi, I went to the University of Mississippi and went through the biology website. And there was a lady called Marjorie Holland, who I had used a couple of her papers in the work that I was currently doing. So I knew very well of her work. And I just cold emailed her. And I said, this is who I am. This is what I'm finishing. This is my studies. This is how I've used your work. And luckily, the email was very, very diligent, just like the German I am. And um, because as a professor later in my career, I would get foreign emails every week, maybe twice, three times a week, I'd get an email from a foreigner saying, I want to come work with you. But it was a blanket email, typically. And I wouldn't even read them. I just delete them. And so my email just never got deleted. And she read it. And she responded and said, there was no advertisement for a PhD position at the time. And she said, yeah, I've got money to do a PhD. It sounds interesting. What would you like to focus on? And I told her and she said, yeah, I think that'll work. And then it took 18 months to get everything processed. And um, that was that. I arrived in the States in 2003 to do a PhD in Oxford, Mississippi. And um, got to experience my first American football season in the Grove of Oxford. <laughs> That you got you got baptized at the deep end of the pool then. It was amazing experience. <laughs> amazing, amazing, amazing experience. And then, um, so yeah, that's what started me here. And I spent three and a half years, four years doing a PhD and then got a postdoc. Um, then moved, got married, moved to Starkville to be a professor in the wildlife fisheries department. I was there for six years. And then I became uh, the chief scientist of the federal council that got born out of the BP oil spill. Did that for a year, uh, and then I got headhunted by the consulting company that I work for today. And so, a lot of people don't realize that Blood Origins is just a passion project. It's just a second day job, essentially. Right. So I have a day job, a full time day job, and then every other spare waking moment of my time. And I mean waking because I get you know two hours in the morning, three hours at night, and all weekends to focus on Blood Origins. And um, well, I know you do thoughts. it because not only do I blow up your phone just because we're friends and there's so much going on in the industry and I just share everything with you, but JC sometimes will do the same thing and you're like, and, and I'll never forget her saying, okay, well, we need to have a, a meeting. And you're like, we'll just name it six o'clock in the morning. And she's like, is he crazy? I'm like, no, he has a real life. <laughs> well, no, it's six o'clock central time or seven o'clock her time. I was like, come on, girl, you got to be out of bed by seven. Let's just, yeah. have a meeting. let's go. Yeah. Which she does. And it's so crazy because when you first met her, she really didn't have an interest in this world that you and mm. I love so much. Right. And it's not politics. It's just preserving and taking action to preserve the life we love. Right. Mm -hmm. And that's how it was presented to her. It's like, you have to take action. There's so many hunters that love our lifestyle and don't act don't vote, don't have a clue what's going on, don't educate themselves. And they're probably like our biggest problem because they're not active. So if we had more voices like yours that could touch people, then, you know, maybe our battles wouldn't be so big. But anyway, she kind of caught the bug um, after meeting you. And it's really changed a lot in her life. I and mean, she's doing crazy fundraising stuff and attending banquets without me and like has her own little schedule and so it's just it's cool that she found her place she needs to be a fundraiser for blood origins it sounds like well you have her number 
I'm pretty <laughs> happy to do it. Yeah. Actually, she's, um, she graduates with her associates, which I didn't even know she was going to get this. Um, and Tifton, she's transferring to UGA to finish out her degree because they didn't have an ag econ degree down at Tifton, but they've been amazing for her um, in the ag world and just loving creating policy in the, in the ag industry. She's done, she had a lot of opportunity um, being down awesome. there. Yeah, so she's, she graduates and we move her straight to DC. She spends the summer there with CSF and she has all of her Ducks Unlimited friends and her SCI friends. Is she interning for CSF in the summer? She is, yeah. Nice, I like that. Yeah, mm -hmm. so yeah, you need to get her involved. She's gonna be in the thick of things. Nice, sounds like a plan. Yeah. All right, so when was the first time you picked up a shotgun? Because I get, I'm assuming oh. you grew up like the, with big gang stuff, you know? I didn't. I didn't grow up hunting. That's right, you didn't. So they, the only, where is that I, I, story? Where's the story that where people can go and find? You can find on our website, bloodorigins.org. Um, it goes to the roots. You can look at the roots page roots. on that website okay. and you can yeah. hear, you can read about my story and then you can also read about it or listen to it. Episode one, the very first piece of content we ever pushed out of Blood Origins is my story. Um, but I think the, the first time, I only hunted once truly in South Africa with my grandfather and my father and it wasn't it was a pigeon hunt dove hunt on a sunflower field and i had a double gay i had a double side by side davidson shotgun dual trigger davidson my grandfather um i don't know if he bought it or bought it for it um back in like 1932 in china and at the time the chinese the way that they licensed shotguns was they burnt the license into the into the stock of the license Sorry, they burnt the license into the stock of the gun. So it's a big uh, burn mark. And I've actually got the stock uh, here because my father, the gun was registered in his name and gun laws got so crazy in South Africa that we, he, put, he angle grinded holes into the barrels and then he chopped the stock off and he handed the gun in and said, here's my gun. I don't want to be a legal gun owner anymore. Because he didn't want to end up on the street. So that's a sad case because I couldn't get the gun here. It was like the gun, right? The 1935 heirloom family gun and couldn't get it here because I didn't, it wasn't in my name. But that's when I shot my first, that was the first shotgun I ever shot. Um, side by side, 12 gauge. Um, I remember my dad allowing me to shoot doves sitting on a fence row. Uh, he said, you can shoot a couple that are sitting. And once I shot two or three, I was like, all right, no more shooting on the ground. No more shooting of them sitting. You have to shoot them flying now. Mm -hmm. And uh, he disappeared went back to the Land Rover and started drinking beers and cooking meat and <laughs> left me in the sunflower field by myself. And it was great. Um, and how old were you? 16. 16. Oh, 16. Yeah. a bandolier of shotgun shells. Um, and uh, I got one of the photographs around here from that hunt. I've got the photographs from that hunt. Yeah, uh, I'll post that, was, that later. That was it. That was the only... That was the only time I shot a shotgun in South Africa until I arrived in the States and then did, you know, your typical redneck Mississippi, you know, disc, you know, little clays in the little slinger disc thing over a pond with a shotgun. So I haven't got a storied history of, of shotgun shooting. Um, I have probably eight or nine shotguns in my safe. So I've fully embraced the Second Amendment of having as many weapons as I possibly could want. <laughs> um, Especially now that I've got two four tens with the boys. So right. Yeah, because now you can't get things in ones, you have to have them in twos. 
and it's a good excuse. I have to get this one because, you know, I have to get this gun. Yeah. I have to get two of them or three of them, actually, you know. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. And then JC comes home and she's like, well, I think I'm going to switch guns this trip and take this one. About. I'm like, I had to go check because she'll come home while I'm gone. Like, mm. What did she take this time? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it may not be the same way, you know, when she goes to Athens, it's not the same yeah. culture over there Yeah. Um, that she's used to down south because they I mean, she hangs out with a lot of professors. So I think they're all hanging out together doing the same thing. So it's been a special place. Um, and I think it's a really cool thing to have your kids in a college that supports this because when she went off to school, I was so nervous. I mean, she got into Auburn. I'm like, eh, I don't know. Like, is it really worth the money to send her off there? And this, and she really wanted to go there because the ag program is amazing. Not to mention their barn in the middle of campus is sure. so beautiful, you know? Um, but when we visited Tifton, it was like home. Mm. It was just like home. And I couldn't imagine like sending your kid off anywhere else. I trusted her with everybody there. So I knew they'd step on her toes when she needed it, you know, and then they would push her to believe in herself, give her confidence when she needed that too. And you don't always get that at those big schools. Mm -hmm. I got one funny story. My only funny story with a gun um, happens to be a shotgun and that I was at, uh, I was a professor in Starkville at the time in the wildlife fisheries degree. And I was invited to go to a DU banquet. So I arrived at a DU banquet uh, you know, poor professor salary and uh, all the graduate students are there and the professor's there. So we're going to drink a little bit. Okay, let's, you know, we're going to drink a little bit. And I looked at all the things that were on offer and there was a, a, an over under, um, I, I don't even think it's like an even, a, a, what kind of gun was it? It's, it was a cheap gun, man. It was like a 400, you know, it was like a $600 shotgun. Okay, it wasn't mm-hmm. anything special. Um but it was a, you know, it had the, the engravings of the quail in it and whatnot. And it's like, man, I don't have an over and under, you know, that's a nice gun. I may, I may, or I may put, a, you know, I'll, when it comes up for live auction, I'll, I'll, I'll go, have a go at it. So they start the auction, they're like $1,000. And this is a college crowd, right? So it's crickets. <laughs> $600 crickets. Someone throw us off. So I said $200, $200. Okay. So then a guy like across the room goes $300. And I just was like $500, not expecting to win it at all. Right. I just like, ah, crickets. I was like, oh, <laughs> 500 was like, obviously it's a lot of money. And I was like, oh my gosh, he's not going to come. He, and they're like, you can, you know, going once, going twice, going, yeah, sold. I was like, mm. got out my phone. Texted my wife. I'm like, I just uh, bought a gun. <laughs> <laughs> we were, you know, we were maybe I maybe we had Leo at the time. You know, we were just at that stage of our lives that every penny counted, right? Yeah. And um, gosh, I still have that gun. It's good. I use it when I go quail hunting. Oh my gosh, you have to keep that one. But it's so special to have that community there with the college kids and like keep them mm-hmm. involved, not just to always um just push facts down their throat that they need to like they need to believe in this or they need to buy into or they need to keep the tradition alive but actually just have fun no i think this yeah the college um d banquets are the most fun we just went to one last week yeah it is uh it is a good it is a good time 
Um, that is no doubt. Yeah. I've only done one. I didn't need to do another. So. Oh, you've only done one? Oh yeah. No, there wasn't, that was not going to be a repeat experience. <laughs> well, Taterbug got in live auction this last time. Um, I kind of got suckered into this too, because she never started raising her hand. Right. And they had this big wooden flag with the duck head, you know, the, the logo and the blue square. She's like, I really love that flag. I'm like, what kind of parent am I if I tell her she can't have a flag, right? So I'm like, okay, well, it's got to be within reason. Well, the kid got so excited, you know, just throwing her hand up. I don't even know how much I ended up having to spend on it. But I'm like, somebody give me a mercy bid because it's an eight-year-old, you know? <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Did that you was get a mercy bid? I don't even remember how much I spent on it. Maybe $200. <laughs> Maybe, maybe she did get it for $200, but I don't know. That seems kind of low. It seems like a starting price, right? Jeez. I don't know. I'm glad I don't, I'm glad I don't remember. But yeah, well, now that you're moving to Mississippi and you love the swamp, and it sounds to me like you're going to have to just sell out to duck hunting. We'll have to send you some calls. And I know that the, you'll love the boys having some duck calls. Yeah, we actually got some. So I've got some duck calls and you can send more <laughs> duck calls if you'd like. Um, I do have a couple of very special duck calls, as you as you probably know, like the things things matter to me. right? like the story behind something. Right. Matters. The sentimental values. Yeah. So I. Um, I've got a couple of calls. I've got my I've got first duck calls of my of for both boys, Leo and Eli engraved on the band for them or whatnot. Um, and then I built a call with a guy uh, in Idaho. His name is Mike Pline. He runs a call company. He got rid of his one call company called Toxic Calls. And he now runs a very specialized call company called Resurrection Calls. What Resurrection Calls are is any material you want, he'll probably, he can build a duck call around. So what he does is he's got a chamber. The chamber is standard. Then he builds material around the, 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 the chamber. So I have a duck call that the top of it is a warthog tusk from my grandfather. And the bottom is lead wood, is iron wood. It's the hardest, densest wood that you can get in South Africa. So those two pieces together form that duck call that, um, that we use. So no, but if you want to send the boys That's duck calls, amazing. send them. Yeah, well, uh, Taterbug's either strumming a guitar, blowing a duck call, so... If you had two of them, I could only imagine. Oh, yeah. No. In duck camp, they are a hoot. Let me say yeah. that. Yeah. yeah. Sure. Well, we're going to have to get them together. We've said we were going to do that for a long time. And it's just our schedules are so crazy. Yep. But we I'm surprised we don't schedules, see each other on the road more often. Yeah. I've, uh, you've got a balance, right? That's, the, that's our problem. We don't have much balance at all. So. No. I think I would be bored out of my mind and drive people crazy if I stayed home very long. How do you not do that right now? Well, I got home yesterday from Talladega and I'm packing tonight. And well, I'm no, leaving. no. How do you how do you not drive people crazy right now? Oh, <laughs> I guess it, I don't know. Maybe I do. <laughs> <laughs> I love well, it. Okay, for your all American hunting heritage, what is one tradition that you really want to? keep going with your boys as they're getting older and really able to make their own meaning of going to camp? 
yeah, I haven't, you know, that's something that I really, I don't have that yet. And I really want to, like, I think this move will allow us to do something like that. Like I want to, like there was a place in Oxford, Mississippi, outside Oxford, Mississippi, where I went and hunted ducks, uh, not ducks, doves for the first time. And I went two, three, four years in a row. And it became like that thing, like that's what I was going to do, right? Mm -hmm. um, I did it with Leo before Eli was old enough. I did it with Leo. Leo's been twice. And so now that they're both old enough, I can take them back to this place and we can start that tradition. We can start the dove season tradition. Um, not that they'll take their own guns, but, you know, they'll be there and the dog will be there and we can start that. And um, similarly, the duck, the duck hunt, the place that we go in Arkansas, you know, we've been there twice now, both boys and we've taken the dog. Mm -hmm. And so now it's, you know, doing that again and making sure that we have time on the calendar to do that. And just, you know, I haven't done the, it, dare I call Arkansas sort of out of state big trip, but I haven't taken the boys like, okay, let's go on a road trip and you know we're sleeping in the tent next to the car kind of road trip that, i don't know if you would want to do that duck hunting sleeping in the no, tent any kind of hunting home. any kind of hunting. oh not just well, i think you should take them snow goose hunting that is just so incredible that's late season too after everything mm -hmm. ends mm -hmm. i've heard that's amazing i haven't done it either yeah so. yeah so that would be a great trip for you guys and you can do that all over, right? You can do that in Arkansas. Mm, yeah, we were in Nebraska and Iowa last year. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, I definitely want to do it. I haven't done it. I've seen, obviously, a bunch of videos and a bunch of people showcasing. You I know, think what it's it just so like. easy for kids. They're in the pits. So that they don't have to worry about being still and they can talk mm -hmm. and there's breakfast there and you know like mm -hmm. it's just an easy hunt having the kids there. Well, duck hunting is that, that way anyway, right? Duck hunting allows you to have that the, the, the kids don't have to stand still they don't have to be quiet they just they can be themselves and and be hidden and you know be kids essentially oh yeah well Hallie Joe totally gave up pheasant hunting after um seeing life in in the pits and was like forget that walking eight miles a day like I'm over that mom <laughs> yeah I'm like oh great now she's just spoiled you know but spoiled, spoiled for sure well, thank you so much for spending time with me on here and for all you've done supporting us, me and both girls and keeping us connected no, and showing us the ways because um, we just really believe that the world needs what you're giving. Well, we appreciate that. And, uh, you know, we want to fight every single day and we do fight every single day. And, um, you know, those that are listening, if you want to help us in terms of the fight, we, you know, we're a nonprofit and uh, we need help in terms of fundraising. And um, people can support us for the cost of a cup of coffee a month, three bucks a month, four bucks a month, five bucks a month. And you have great um, giveaways every month too. Major. Every give, every yeah, twelve really giveaways. Really good rap items. Yeah. Um, we actually have a guy who won the five-day South African hunt last week, last last month, and I can't get a hold of him. He must have given me a burner email when he submitted his, whatever his payment was, but I've sent him an email saying you won five days in Africa, just show up in Johannesburg. Everything else is taken care of. So he may miss out on an oh, African no. hunt. We've got a pig hunt in Oklahoma up for grabs now. Um, that's all sorts of gift cards. And then if you're a company, if you want to, if you're a company and you want to, you know, a tax deductible expense, you can join our conservation club, which helps us build these conservation projects that we invest in all around the world. We currently have one up and running in Arkansas, a black bear collaring project in Arkansas. It's been open for 48 hours and we've raised over $20,000. Wow. 
in 48 Incredible. hours. Yep. So uh, we're aiming to, to raise $70,000 for that. And uh, there's $30,000 worth of match available. So you put a dollar in, you get $2. You put $100 in, you get $200. You put $1,000 in, you get $2,000 credited to your name. So yeah, it's exciting. And uh, thanks to you. Thank you for the opportunity to talk just a little bit about what we love. And uh, keep well, on yeah, cracking. Can find, everyone can find you on Instagram at Blood Origins and then on YouTube at Blood Origins. If you want to subscribe and get those videos, put them out 100%. every week. Yeah. Yeah. And your podcast, too. Out. Your podcast. So that's it. Yeah. Thanks, okay. Thank you, Robbie. You're welcome. I guess that's something you don't understand.